The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. You can be seated. Thank you. Great singing. Great song selection music team, whoever put that together. Thank you very much. And um, children can head out to Children's Church. You can turn to John 11 in your scriptures. I got a good report from the surgeon this past week. He, uh, as only a surgeon can do, said, uh, you know, you're three months along to an eight-month recovery. See you in a year. Okay. Thank you very much. You could have told me that over the phone, I think, but uh, I drove to Albany to get the good news. I'm going to read the text uh, for you. I'm going to just read a little bit from uh, verse number 20, uh, verse number 20 of John 11. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. And Martha saith unto him, well, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And she saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. As we come to John 11 in the account of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, I want to send out a warning uh, because it's easy to assume that we already know the meaning of the text. But be careful with the assumptions we form, even with familiar texts, because those assumptions, by the way, even right assumptions, can get in the way of what the Spirit is doing at present, in this present moment. Uh, as I begin, I'm praying for the Spirit to give us fresh insight from this text. I uh, don't want to lean on our own understanding. We don't want to think about some sermon we heard, whoever it was from or whenever it was. We want to say, what is the Spirit teaching us today from this text? And lean into the work of the Spirit. So I invite you to join me in a prayer. This particular prayer is from the litany found in the common book of prayer of the Anglican Church. And I encourage you to pray it with me and consider it as we do. Father, that it may please thee to give to all thy people increase of grace, to hear meekly thy word and to receive it with pure affection and to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. Amen. And I want you to have an increase of grace. I want you to meekly hear God's word and receive it this morning with pure affections. You know we've been working through the I Am statements of Jesus and we've noted as we've gone along that John is weaving a story of how God has acted in history through his son to bring light and life to people 
who were in darkness and death. And John has not been bashful to present people as being helpless or unable to change their circumstances. And it is this focus on the inability of people that uh, John weaves in the story of Christ. You begin with John 6, where people need bread because they're hungry. He says to the disciples, all these people are hungry, feed them. And what do the disciples say? How are we going to feed them? There's not enough money or time or food you know, to feed all these people. And then Jesus says, well, I'll take care of it. I am the bread of life. And he demonstrates that by making fish sandwiches for everybody. And the people ate to their fullness. Inability. Hungry people needing bread. The need for light. Spiritually blind people. The light is shining all around them. But they do not have the ability within themselves to change their circumstances and to come to the light. They're spiritually blind. They need to be healed as the man who had been blind since birth needed physical healing. John moves us then into the clarity of the illustration of the sheepfold. There's only one entrance. People are constantly trying to get in another way, thieves and robbers. But you do not have the ability to get into that sheepfold other than going through Jesus into it. And then as we saw last week, people, of course, need a shepherd who gives his life for them. Because they are unable, they are unable to save themselves. And when you get to John 11 and the death of Lazarus, John gives us one final example of the inability of people to change their circumstances. And there is perhaps no greater way to say that than to say death. Death is the final illustration that John is using to say people in and of themselves cannot change their circumstances. For John, the death of Lazarus is the final argument in his presentation of human inability against the backdrop of God's sovereign ability. And this is as relevant today for us as it was when John first wrote this gospel. And why? Why is it important? Because it is this very point that reveals our pride and the friction that comes as people resist the gracious invitation of God, saying, no, I can do it myself. I can save myself. I can earn enough God points, and God will certainly let me into heaven, or I'm a good person, or I work hard, or whatever you might think you're bringing. We've spent some wonderful time with our grandchildren lately, and I'm reminded that I have a granddaughter who, who thinks like she doesn't need help. She's, she's got it all figured out. She can do anything. She's three years old. She can do anything. She's trying to get the car door open. I said, hey, you can't open the door. Oh, yes, I can. I don't need your help. I can open the car door. No, you can't. I've done it before. Well, you can't do it this time. It's locked. You can't do it. Yes, I can. And I just realized like 15 seconds of my life had just floated away, you know, trying to debate with my three-year-old granddaughter. This is what John does. Can you imagine being a Jew in uh, the time of Jesus? God's chosen people, you're the righteous nation in the midst of all of this unrighteousness. And Jesus says, you can't. And what do the Jews keep saying? Oh, yes, we can. 
And Jesus says, no, you can't. You, you see how that creates friction. I mean, doesn't that kind of raise up within you this, this inward friction that says, well, don't tell me I can't. Now, some of us are fine in letting other people do it. Don't get me wrong. Like, sure, go ahead. But that's not the point. The point is pride creates in us a resistance against God's work because we don't want God or anyone telling us, no, you can't do that. You can't satisfy your hunger. You can't bring light into your situation. You you can't get into God's salvation through the door you're creating. You, you can't give yourself life. And so, so John works this theme. And, he, and he's giving us the story of Lazarus. And isn't it interesting? This is the only of the four Gospels, this dramatic story that sets up then Holy Week and all that's coming with the death of Jesus. John's the only one who gives it to us. Right? Other, other stories are shared by the other gospel writers. But John uses this story at the kind of the end of the arc of his, of his theme to show us human inability against the backdrop of God's sovereign ability. And this point of pride John's already talked about back in chapter 3. And if you were to reread chapter number 3, try not to do it like rushing the verse 16, which we're all very familiar with. But really think about what John is presenting as Jesus goes to Nicodemus, and then as John gives this commentary, he says this, and you know I've been using the King James a lot here over the last months, so I wanted to just give John 3.19 in the paraphrase of the message, and I think it's a really wonderful little insight that they give. Um, listen as I read it. Uh, this is the crisis we are in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Just just think about the human condition. Hunger and blindness and thieves and robbers and now death. That people want to please themselves more than they want to please God. They love the darkness rather than light. John said that their deeds are evil. And it is in the midst of this environment that Jesus arrives and he's bringing the light of God's salvation and the people are resisting it. And this is the crisis. And this crisis exists today. It perhaps exists in this room where in the depth of your heart, you really don't want what God wants. You don't want God saying to you, sorry, you'll never be good enough to get into heaven. What you really want is for God to say, you're, you're pretty good and yeah, you're good enough, come on in because you're better than a whole lot of other people. This is the crisis we are in. And the God light streaming right now into this room and into this hamlet and into the village and into the world. But what are people doing? Like they're just running for the darkness. They're just running for the darkness. It is this pursuit of darkness that reveals why we need deliverance. And to uh, use a quote from a 
book I'm studying with with Eric and Jude uh, by Fleming Rutledge on the crucifixion, she says this, we don't need a program. We do not need a program. We need deliverance from this whole cycle of violence and vengefulness. Humankind needs to be saved from itself. But humankind will, will never be saved from itself because it won't admit that it can't save itself. They'll just keep running to programs to the next thing. And, of course, as we've said on many occasions, that's what's presented in the a la carte menu of many places uh, where people gather on a Sunday called church. Uh, it's, a, it's a self-salvation project. And God is not at the center of that. I mean, the, the, the world's breaking apart at a rather rapid pace. How, how is this world going to be delivered from the cycle of violence and vengefulness? Programs? Government? Church? Societal? No. We have to be saved from ourselves. And, and this is the story, of course, that John is telling, and the same friction that, uh, you know, John presents Jesus being up against is the same friction that we're up against as well when we give this kind of a message because it creates resistance. And so this, this brings me to the, my first kind of big point, which is actually a repeat of last week, and that's okay because I want to kind of set this in your mind. And it's the point that John is presenting this conflict within the midst of religious feasts and festivals. That he is telling the story of Jesus by placing Jesus in, you know, the midst of Jewish life. And we noted this. Jesus is overcoming what Isaiah the prophet called the gross darkness that covers the earth. And John places him firmly at the center of Jewish religious life. We Remember back in chapter 7 through the middle of chapter 10 that it's the Feast of Booths and, and the Jews would make these, these wonderful and be very decorative and uh, booths, um, little tents, you know, and they would place them all around as a reminder during the, fe- during the festival, which would happen around harvest, as a reminder that God brought them out of their wilderness wanderings and that they were living in tents, but God gave them a land and God gave them permanence and they built houses and they developed a culture and they had a nation and all these things. And even though now they were held captive by the Romans, they were still in their land and could worship as they chose. And so they would have this festival of booths and Jesus is in the middle of that festival. And John is telling us about the resistance of the people against Jesus, even as this feast is going on. And then he moves it forward, as we saw last week, to the feast of of dedication of the second temple of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And there is Jesus on Solomon's portico, lights everywhere, and it's dark, it's winter, and yet the religious leaders cannot see Jesus as the light of the world. And then he moves us from to this story in John 11 all the way to chapter 12, he moves us to Passover. And it's about an eight-month period from chapter number 7 to the beginning then of Passover in chapter number 12. 
And John puts this evidence together and John presents this to us and he says, listen, find confidence in Jesus because he is the one who is showing us the way into God's salvation. That God's salvation will not come through the self-effort of religious practices. It can only come through his life. Have you got it straight in your mind, right, that coming to church doesn't make you a Christian, as is often said, any more that, uh, you, know, you know, sitting in your car makes you a car, right? You know, coming to church, it can certainly show you the way to be a Christian and should show you the way to be a Christian. But are you a Christian because you have trusted in Jesus Christ, who is the only way into God's salvation, the good shepherd that gave his life for the sheep? It is not through the self-effort of religious practice. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Why? Because the sheep could not save themselves. And that then becomes a marker that points us to the truth that the good shepherd also lives for his sheep because the sheep cannot live without him. We we sang down at St. James earlier this morning, because he lives, and I'm always struck with the line, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Does anybody know what's coming tomorrow? No, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. We may think we do, but we really don't. Well, how do you plan on facing it? How do you plan on facing the unknown of tomorrow or the next day or what's coming down the road? Unless you've trusted in the one who lives. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And this is what John is saying. The account of raising Lazarus from the dead, as much as it has brought much comfort and blessing to people in the time of grief, it is not a standalone miracle that we kind of pull a little story out of our bag to read to people at a funeral because they're having a difficult time. That's not it. The, the point of, the, of Lazarus being raised from the dead points to a greater miracle that is just coming in a short amount of time of Jesus himself being raised by the power of God from the dead. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the apostles proclaimed as the event that changed everything. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, you with wicked hands crucified him, but God raised him from the dead and showed him alive by many proofs. Paul, at Athens, among the Stoics, the philosophers, the Epicureans, what does Paul say? Day of judgment is coming, and uh, that day is going to be because God has appointed a Savior, Jesus, right? And he's given proof of this day of judgment coming by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event that changes everything. And John places for us the story of Lazarus just before entering into Passover so that we might find hope and get firm in our understanding that we can indeed face tomorrow because Jesus lives. So I I just want to remind us of this kind of important reality, and I've been saying this over and again, and I, I probably will say it a few more times. Our job as a church is not to go around telling, you know, interesting, nice stories about Jesus. You know, a a good man that did nice things for people and he got misunderstood at the end and, you know, died. Our job, our job as a church 
is to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ, the king, who came and did for his people what they could not do for themselves. He is the word made flesh. He entered into the particulars of our lives, the naughty problems that we could not solve. Namely, what are you planning on doing with your shame? What are you planning on doing with your guilt over sin? And of course, the great enemy, death. I mean, the story that Ali read from Genesis 3 shows us the naughty problem we're in. We're hiding in the bushes. It's the cool of the day. We're supposed to be fellowshipping with God. Not No, we're afraid. And God comes to seek after us. And God provides clothing for us. What an image. What a picture of what God in Christ has done. And this is the work of God. Who in infinite love sends Jesus to provide that clothing, that sacrifice for sins. And to defeat the penalty of our sins As Jesus absorbs death, as he swallows up death in victory, and then he promises, right, to do what? To raise everyone who believes in him from the dead so that we too will live. And when the time comes in all of its fullness and God delivers the kingdom uh, uh, over to, uh, Christ delivers over the kingdom to God, and then um, the Creation receives its promise and it is renewed and the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We then will receive exactly what is promised of life because Jesus is indeed the resurrection and he is the life. This is what the apostles preached. This is what we declare to be true. This is what you must believe if you are going to be saved. That you cannot get in any way other than through faith in Jesus. And so this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead sets up a marker. It points us in the direction of Jesus, who is the resurrection and he is the life. Now, there's something interesting, and I don't just mean interesting like, oh, well, that's kind of neat. But no, I think it's interesting because the way John sets this up, there's an, there's an overlay. If you were to put nine parts of chapter 9 over the top of 11, you're going to see a lot of similarities. I'm just going to point them out to you. You can pick up a copy of the sermon and see some more detailed information. But just let me, let me give them to you. In John 9, it's the healing of the blind man. The man has been blind since birth. And as Jesus and the disciples passed by, they, the disciples said to Jesus, did the man sin or did his um, parents sin that caused them to be blind since birth? It was an ethical dilemma for the Jews because they believed that you would have the blessing of God unless somebody sinned. So the assumption was somebody messed up, somebody sinned. And Jesus says, oh no. It's neither. He's blind so that I might do the work of God and the glory of God would be seen in him. And that's a tough thing to say. Talk to anybody with a lifelong, you know, physical, uh, you know, impairment or difficulty and say to them, well, you know, you have that because God wants to get glory from that. And that's a difficult thing for somebody to hear. But this is what Jesus said. Now look the way Jesus sets this up when he um, tells his disciples about Lazarus. 
He says in verse number four, the sickness is not unto death, but for what? For what purpose? Verse four, John 11, what's it for? That God may be glorified. You see, very similar language, isn't it? He's been blind since birth because I want to do a work in him for which God's going to receive the glory. Lazarus has died so that God might receive the glory and that the Son of Man might be glorified thereby. I mean, that's a really difficult thing for somebody to hear, isn't it? But that's just, I'm going to think about the timing of the miracles. I don't know how many times Jesus would have walked down that road when the blind man is begging, but he would have passed by him. Blind man's been there, you know, most of his life. But it wasn't until that moment that Jesus decided to heal him. Jesus receives word that his friend Lazarus is dead. He waits for two days. Before he arrives, Lazarus is now dead for four days. I mean, isn't that a difficult thing to grapple with? Don't be so familiar with this story that that doesn't impact you. That God's timing doesn't always look like something we should go like, wow, God, thank you so much for waiting. In John 9, there's this reference between light and darkness and work. Work being done. I'm here to do the works of God. And in John 11, Jesus references this again when he talks about 12 hours in the day, light and darkness, walking in the day, stumbling not, seeing the light of the world. And I think, I think these overlays are there for one reason, and that is to drive deeply into our lives and understanding that at the end of all of it, at the end of all of this you know, hardship and suffering, of physical blindness, of sickness leading to death, and all of the grief and all of the hardship that follows it, that at the end of it, what do you have Jesus saying to the man now who was blind but now can see? He says, are you going to believe in me? Are you going to follow me? Remember the guy got kicked out of the synagogue, right? Here's your reward for getting your sight. Now you get kicked out of the synagogue. And the blind man says, well, I want to follow you. And he does. And, and what, is, what is the reward then after Lazarus dies? What are we called to? We are called to faith. And I really, I think it's just so insightful the way Jesus talks about this um, to his disciples. And they're confused about what's going on. And Jesus says to them in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus uses, again, he uses this language. Anybody who's dealt with death, anybody that has suffered physically, whatever it might be, it's just hard language to hear for Jesus to say, well, I'm glad for your sakes I was not there. Why? To the intent ye may believe. To the intent ye may believe. Wow. I'm glad I wasn't in Bethany when Lazarus got sick, and I'm glad that I didn't heal him so that you might believe. Talking about friction, talking about a challenge for all of us, any of us who have suffered the unexpected, the hardship, the loss. That God would be glorified. God's timing will be perfect. The work of grace, overcoming the darkness, bringing the light so that you might believe. This is what John does as he tells us the story of Jesus. 
and brings into our understanding then, well, what does it mean to have faith and what does it mean to follow? And is this some fresh insight from the Spirit that we can look at this and we can say that this story is more than just a nice little tale about a guy who, you know, was raised from the dead at the end. Isn't that wonderful for his family? No, it's about our suffering. It's about our hardship. It's about the conflict that we live in within this world where light is coming and darkness is resisting it. And where people are lashing out and saying, well, if there is a God, why is all of this nonsense? Why is all this, you know, hell going on on earth if there is a God? And, and we have to come up with an answer, right? And when you say to somebody, well, so that God will be glorified. And that, that just kind of ends the conversation. God delays so that you might believe. And that kind of just... That's that. Because the, the resistance of the human heart that doesn't want them to enter into faith and follow. And so I just want to end with some, just three lessons then that maybe will help us put this together and, and, and then kind of live it out. And the first is this John 11 is, is really a lesson for conflict. And there's no greater conflict, right, than death. I mean, every, I mean, I say everyone... The process of dying is a, is a work of resistance, right? I mean, some people die instantly, sure, but the process of dying is a work of resistance. And I've been at the bedside many times. I've heard some of you say to your loved ones, you kind of like give them permission. You don't need to hang on. We'll be okay. You can let them go. Because the work of dying is resistance and it's a conflict. And this conflict of light coming into the world. And, and how are people going to be delivered from the oppression of darkness? This, this conflict that rises up out of this particular text. I mean, think about the response of the Jewish leadership to the ministry of love and mercy that Jesus delivered. What do they want to do? They, they want to put him to death. I mean, in just a short time, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, you know what happens? They want to put Lazarus to death. This is a lesson in conflict for the world in which we live as well. The power of evil has so engulfed the religious leaders that they are, they are so lost in the chaos of their darkness that they not only want to put the miracle worker to death, but they want to put the one who received the miracle to death. It wasn't bad enough to throw the blind guy that now has a sight out of the synagogue. Now they want, to, they want to put Lazarus to death. This is the conflict. This is the world in which, in which we live as well. But light always wins out. Light always has the upper hand. And, you know, as Christians today, now that we are, you know, solidly in the minority, I don't, you know, in numbers and in culture and in persuasion of, of what's going on, at least from the human vantage point in America, let's not step back in defeat. We actually have the only message that's going to change things. Humankind needs to be saved from itself, and we have that message. I, I started doing something. I'm not saying it's going to be world-changing, but I just want to encourage you. Here's some ways we can just step forward and, and understand in the conflict how we might should respond. And I've just been working really hard to be intentional. After any exchange, I don't care if it's the bank teller or it's the person in the, you know, I'm buying something from, or whoever it is, I look at them, I say, you know, I hope you have a wonderful day, and may God bless you. 
You know, there was a time when Christian language just kind of dominated our culture. People used Christian language. Now, you know, you're out. What do you hear? You hear blasphemy and cursing. I mean, you just hear language that, you know, <laughs> makes you blush. Just coming from kids. Why can't the church just step forward in small yet incremental ways and just reinsert somewhat of a passive-aggressive way vocabulary? But you've got to be intentional about it. Responding to the conflict with light as Jesus has done, as John has shown us in this, in this whole kind of section from 7 to 11. Let me give you the second lesson, and that's assurance. There is a way that we can determine that Lazarus was a part of God's fold, of God's flock. Remember what Jesus said? My sheep hear my what? And what do they do? They follow. Here's Lazarus, been dead four days, and he hears the voice of Jesus. That's how we know he was part of God's fold. He heard the voice of Jesus, and he's like, get up, follow me. And out he comes, you know, popping out, still in the grave clothes. I'm like, take off the stuff, let's go eat. He heard his voice, and he followed him. In that moment, if there is a moment, when you're going to pass from this life into the next, and you might have fear, you might say to you, is this really true? Is everything I've staked my life on in the future really true and you're about ready you know, to die? Be assured that because of Jesus Christ, when you are in the depth of death, you will hear his voice on resurrection day. And you will, you will be raised and you will follow him. And where will you follow him? You will follow him into eternal life. Because where there is light, there is life. You will hear his voice and you will follow just as Lazarus heard his voice. And Lazarus followed. And and that takes me to my third lesson in this kind of sermon. And that's mercy. You know, the shepherd knows how to bring mercy to grieving people. The call to faith with Martha is different than the comfort of Mary. Martha runs out of the village, right? Like, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus, Jesus is like, hey, Martha, he's going to live. Yeah, I know he's going to live. See, Martha was a good Jewish girl. She'd been to synagogue. She knows what's going on. And Jesus says, no, no, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Oh, do you believe? Yes, I believe. She runs back. She gets Mary. Mary comes out of the village. And what's Mary's response? She's just crying. And Jesus walks with her. And what does Jesus begin to do with Mary? He weeps. And this is the way he comes to us. And and this whole chapter is a lesson in mercy of how God in Christ extends mercy to us in our great need. Because we participate in a battle that is raging all around us. Let us show mercy to those who are around us. Mercy to people who are in need. Some of those people need to be confronted with the truth about God and Christ. Other people need us to cry with them, to weep with them, to help them in their grief and sorrow so that they too might come to the light and life 
of Christ. For this is how Jesus comes to us. He comes to us in our hunger. He's the bread of life. He comes to us in our chaos. He's the light of the world. He comes to us even in our death. He is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That's the question Jesus asked. Do you believe this? And if you do, then follow. And let your life be transformed by the one who will transform you as you follow him. Let me pray. Father, I give you thanks so much for the word to us today. I pray that it might be helpful. Um, I pray that we would not have lost our attention on the way. I pray that things that were not clear would be made clear. And, oh God, that you would be merciful to help us. Help us, O oh Lord, we need your help in a world that is in such chaos, such darkness. Let us, let us proclaim the light and life of Jesus to it. I'll give you an opportunity to just be quiet in prayer for a few moments before Mike comes and leads us to the table of our Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.